We're going to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17. Matthew, chapter 17. We'll consider Jesus and the temple tax. Jesus and the temple tax. Matthew 17, I'll read from verse 24. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money, that take and give unto them for me and thee. So, there you have it. The Lord Jesus Christ is in a house. We don't know what house. It's probably the house of Simon Peter. Uh, or his, And we don't know. We know that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. He had nothing in this world. The King of glory. The creator of everything. But anyway, he was in a house... And before Peter entered the house, collectors of the temple tax, the tribute, came to him. It goes back to the Old Testament. We needn't look into that now, but uh, it's an Old Testament thing, giving money for the maintenance of the temple. And for those of us who were here on Wednesdays looking at the kings of Judah in recent times, you may remember Joshua. He reinitiated this payment of uh, tribute to restore the temple in Jerusalem. And clearly this was an ongoing thing and the people who were had the responsibility for collecting money for the upkeep, the maintenance of the temple, they said to Peter, doth not your master pay tribute? And Peter said, yes. Yes, he does. Whereupon Peter entered the house And Jesus spoke to him, telling him that the kings do not pay tax, That's nor do their children, it's for strangers to pay tax. And he said, so as not to offend anyone, cast your hook into the sea and catch a fish and the tribute money would be in the fish's mouth. That's basically it, isn't it? So, well, let's have a look at verse 24 again in Matthew 17. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tax, uh, pay tribute? The temple tax collectors came to the apostle Peter and asked him a question concerning the Lord Jesus Christ 
They said, doth not your master pay tribute? That may seem like a perfectly innocent question. Maybe it was perfectly innocent. However, it sounds like they may have been making an accusation against Jesus. Why do I say that? It comes across in the way that the question was framed negatively. They said, doth not your master pay tribute? Instead of saying, does your master pay tribute, doth not your master pay tribute? It's like saying to a Christian who didn't come to church last week, didn't you come to church last Sunday? You know, there's a, there's a bit of a dig there, isn't there? When you put it negatively. It would not have been the first time that people sought to accuse Jesus in some way. Whether it was for Jesus not conforming to uh, Jewish traditions that had evolved over the years, or else the, they, the Jewish religious people, they perceived, wrongly perceived, that Jesus didn't keep God's law. So they accused him and they sought to to trap him in various ways with various questions. There was no question of Jesus being disobedient to God's law. He actually came into this world to fulfil the law and the prophets. And Christians are people who have the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is imputed to their account. We all fail miserably to keep God's laws. That is not an accusation that can be levelled against Jesus. He, he kept God's laws and that perfect obedience is credited to the account of all who are trusting in him. Let's read on. Whether it was um, they were trying to trap Jesus or not, I don't really know, but the, the question certainly suggests that possibility. Doth not your master pay tribute? Let's have a look at verses 25 and 26. He saith, yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him. That doesn't mean he stopped him. That's how we use that word now, isn't it? The the word has changed its meaning. When you prevent someone from doing something, you stop them from doing something. Prevent, as it is in the text here, it means to anticipate When you prevent, you anticipate. So Jesus prevented him or anticipated what he was going to say. And Jesus said, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, then are the children free. Peter had said yes to those collectors of the tax, yes that Jesus did pay the temple tax, then he, as I say, he went into the house where Jesus was. The first thing to see is that before Peter even opened his mouth, Jesus prevented him. In other words, he spoke first, and said, what thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of the strangers? That question by Jesus wasn't just randomly asked by him. 
about paying tribute. He clearly knew about the conversation that had taken place between Peter and the collectors of the temple tax. And that prior knowledge of Jesus, the fact that he knew about that conversation that had taken place, that points to his omniscience, his all-knowingness, his divinity, that he is God manifest in the flesh. There were other times, in the, we see that in the New Testament, when Jesus, he knew what had happened without anyone telling him. Admittedly, there were occasions when Jesus, that, that occasion rather, that one occasion when Jesus speaking to his disciples about the end of the world said in Mark chapter 13 and verse 32, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. The New Testament commentator Lenski explains, in his humiliation, the second person did not use his divine attributes save as he needed them in his mediatorial work. So the divine omniscience was used by Jesus only in this restricted way. That is why, <coughs> that is why here on Mount Olivet, he does not know the date of the end. How the incarnate son could, during his humiliation, thus restrict himself in the use of the divine attributes is one of the mysteries of his person. The fact is beyond dispute. Even so, it's clear in today's passage that we're looking at and elsewhere that Jesus, according to his divine nature, is all-knowing. For example, in Matthew chapter 9, there is a clear, there's a passage about some scribes who thought within themselves that Jesus was a blasphemer because he forgave someone his sins. In chapter 9 verse 4, it is written, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? And there was that other time that comes to mind when a man who was paralysed from head to toe was lowered down through the, the roof and the ceiling into a house, lowered down to the feet of Jesus, who was preaching in that house. The man couldn't move, he was on a stretcher. And Jesus saw to his most important need. It wasn't his paralysis, it was his sin. And he said to the man, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. No one, did, no one said anything, but Jesus knew what the certain Jews were thinking. They were thinking, how can he, a mere man, forgive someone their sins? And so Jesus responded, without them even saying anything, Jesus said, so that you may know that the Son of Man have power to give sins, he then commanded the man to take up his mat. And he healed him of his paralysis as well. The man got up. No one could deny that he'd been, he'd received that physical healing because he stood up and took his mat. And that pointed to the fact that Jesus is God 
and that he does have authority, even as the Son of Man, to forgive sins. What the Lord Jesus Christ said to Peter took the form of a parable when he spoke to Peter in that house. He asked Simon Peter whether the kings of the earth received taxes from their children or from strangers. Whereupon Peter replied, strangers. Nowadays that question may not make a great deal of sense because even the kings of the earth, or certainly some of them, do pay taxes. Her Majesty the Queen has paid tax, income tax, since 1993. So there are cases where, well actually, kings and queens, rulers, they do pay tax. However, the very idea of the rulers of nations and their children paying taxes in times past was out of the question. Only strangers and the citizens of countries pay taxes, certainly not kings and queens. And their children, the children didn't have to pay tax. Jesus was using that analogy to highlight the folly of himself, the son of God, making payments for the upkeep of what? The temple, where God is worshipped, bearing in mind that Jesus is the Son of God. You can see the folly of that, Jesus paying for the upkeep of that temple where God is worshipped. Furthermore, all who are trusting in the Son of God as their saviour from sin are themselves children of God by adoption. If you're trusting in Jesus, you are a son or a daughter of God. As it is written in John chapter 1, verse 11 through to 13, he came unto his own. Jesus came to the Jews and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the the power or the right to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, people who are born again. Therefore, what Jesus was saying was that if a Jew was born again and trusting in him, the only begotten Son of God, then they, as well as him, were exempt from paying the temple tax. It doesn't make sense to pay that tax. For me, the whole idea of the Lord Jesus Christ paying the temple tax becomes even more preposterous when one considers what that building in Jerusalem pointed to. That beautiful building made with human hands, the temple, a place of worship, what did it point to? Jesus. It pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom these tax collectors were saying, doth not your master pay the temple tax? That temple pointed to Christ. For example, I'm going to turn to, uh, I'll be coming back to um, Matthew 17, but I'm going to come back, uh, rather I'm going to go to John chapter 2, and you'll see what I mean. John chapter 2 verse 18 
Then answered the Jews and said unto him, unto Jesus, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus was doing miracles. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? They thought Jesus was talking about the temple in Jerusalem. It took a long, long time to build that temple. How can Jesus raise it up in three days? Then said the Jews, sorry, but he spoke, verse 21 there, but he spake of the temple of his body. Jesus was talking about himself as the temple and he was making reference to him being raised up, raising himself on the third day after his crucifixion. In the past, people came to worship God in a temple in Jerusalem. There's a lot of people that are waiting and waiting for the temple to be rebuilt. Uh, they're, They're so focused on this temple made with human hands. There was the temple of Solomon, the Herod's temple, buildings made by people in Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD according to uh, Jesus predicted it. He said that he said as much that not one stone would be left un- uh, on top of another. He did, Jesus predicted the destruction of that temple in Jerusalem. And quite frankly there is no need for it anymore because Jesus is that temple And it's rather unfortunate when you've got Christians who get excited about the prospect of another temple being built in Jerusalem. They've missed it. Jesus is that temple. In the past, people came to worship God in the temple in Jerusalem. However, God is to be approached and worshipped in the temple, which is not made with human hands. That temple is Jesus, the eternal Son of God. That is the only true worship, when you worship God in the temple, who is Christ Jesus. If you're not in that temple, your worship is a waste of time. You may as well worship the wall. If you're not worshipping in Jesus, if you're not in him, the temple... Let's have a look at verse 27. I'm back in um, Matthew chapter 17 now. Verse 27. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea and cast an hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour from sin and you are therefore a born again Christian, a son or a daughter of God, 
worshipping God in Christ your temple. I hope you've got all of that. Worshipping God in Christ your temple as a child of God. You cannot expect to be Mr. or Miss Popular in this Christ-hating and sin-loving world. It doesn't make sense. We've seen it in the Bible time and time again in recent times. It is not only given unto you to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for his sake also. And to rejoice when you suffer. You rejoice because that is proof of the hope that you have when you suffer for Christ's sake. It is something to glory in. And you glory in Jesus Christ and his finished works at the cross. Having said that, you need to be careful not to cause avoidable offence. Don't go around looking for trouble with people. The gospel of Christ will cause enough offence without you adding to it with words or actions that can be avoided. And so it is that in verse 27, Jesus instructed Peter to go and get the required money, that temple tax, in order to avoid offending people or putting a stumbling block in the way of the advance of the gospel. As I say, Jesus didn't need to pay that temple tax and nor did those who belonged to him, children of God. But that would have caused offence, a great deal of offence. And there was no point in that. That would have harmed the advancement of the gospel. We can look at the Apostle Paul. He was very careful not to cause offence to people, unavoidable offence. He offended people with the gospel of Christ, that's for sure. He offended people so much with the gospel of Christ that he was beaten, left for dead many times. But even so, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul asked, don't we have the right to eat and drink? Him and the other apostles, that is. Don't we have the right to get married? Don't Barnabas and I have the right to refrain from doing secular work? The apostle argued from a worldly perspective and a biblical perspective why his needs should be met by the church. He shouldn't have to do secular work. He shouldn't have to go out and earn a living in order to eat. That should be provided. Do not muzzle the ox that treadeth the corn. If your work is in the gospel, then you live by the gospel. That's fair enough. You can understand that from a worldly perspective and indeed a biblical perspective. Yet for all of Paul's persuasive reasons for why he was entitled to get married and to be rewarded for his apostolic ministry, he nevertheless refrained from taking what was rightly his. He said, Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. What is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. The Apostle Paul made sacrifices for the sake of the gospel of Christ. And we are to do that if we're ch uh, children of God, if we're Christians. We're to deny ourselves, we're to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Denying yourself involves sacrifice. 
Therefore, dear Christian, what you need to ask yourself when you have choices and when you have decisions to make is not, what is my entitlement? We're all big on that, aren't we? We're very good at knowing what we're entitled to. We're not so keen on our duties, but we're very keen to get everything that we are entitled to. Whether people like it or not. What we should do is ask ourselves, what would best serve the advancement of the gospel of Christ? That must come first for Christians. In order that in all things, sinners who are heading closer to hell by the day will be pointed to Jesus for the glory of God. That must be your concern. And that's the motto of the London City Mission. The glory of God and the salvation of souls. Let that be your chief and your only end. It's a good motto. Coming back to our passage in verse 27. Peter, uh, sorry, Jesus said to Peter, Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea and cast an hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. Have you ever given any thought, given any thought to what was involved in Peter catching that fish with money in its mouth? Do you think about these things? I'm not saying you have to. I get, I get stuck on verses like that. Wonderfully stuck. I could think about a verse like that for a long, long time. I wouldn't necessarily get far with it, but it doesn't stop me thinking about it at the very least. Various Bible commentators have suggested that Jesus knew that there was a fish in the Sea of Galilee that had the money in its mouth and he drew that fish to where Peter cast in his hook. Possible? Who knows? As amazing as it might sound, it's well within the capability of Jesus to do that. After all, he is the, the, he is the omniscient son of God. We've already looked at that. He knows all things. If there was a fish somewhere in the Sea of Galilee with that tribute money in its mouth, Jesus would have known it. Yeah. And he would have surely been able to steer that fish to Peter's hook. What actually happened is not disclosed. We're not told. For what it's worth, I tend to think that this was a, a what I've called here a create something from nothing type of miracle from the Son of God of the type that can be seen on other occasions, creating something from nothing, that fish with the with the money in its mouth. <clears throat> For example, in Psalm thirty three, verse six, it is written By the word of the Lord, emphasis there on the word of the Lord, were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. 
quoting the Bible commentator John Gill, what that verse is saying is that the aerial and starry heavens and the heaven of heavens, the third heaven, (coughs) the seat of the divine majesty and the habitation of angels and glorified saints, these were made even out of nothing, not out of any pre-existent matter. These were made by the word of God, the essential word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the word of God and he made everything out of nothing by the breath of his mouth. And what about when Jesus fed the multitude? My first reading today, when Jesus fed the 5,000 plus people, To start with, there were five barley loaves and two small fishes. That's not a lot of food. But after all those people had eaten, there were 12 baskets of leftovers. Have you ever thought about how such a small amount of food fed so many tummies and how there was more food, including fishes, at the end? than there was to start with. Again, you can think about this and you won't get far with it. You can think about it and go around in circles. It hasn't stopped me thinking about it though and picturing it 12 basketfuls of fragments after all those people, 5,000 men, you've got their wives, you've got the children, all those people fed pretty much from nothing and, and so much leftover, bread and fishes. I know that a miracle is precisely that, a miracle. And there are those who will not spend any time dwelling on them. My answer to that is that while you're thinking about how, um, thinking about what you achieved last week and how amazed you are with yourself that you did all those things last week, I'll think about and I will be amazed and wonder at the miracles of my great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We've just seen that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the creator of heaven and earth, that he is the God of miracles. Also, we've seen that Jesus is omniscient, that he is the all-knowing Son of God. Just to remind you, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it is written, The word of God is quick and powerful. Quick and powerful, alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. How can you divide the soul and spirit? The word of God does precisely that, divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You need to understand that Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the one who, who penetrates and divides asunder soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of your heart. 
You need not imagine that you can hide anything from Jesus, least of all your lies, your selfish ways, your sins. You cannot hide anything from Jesus. He knows it all. Not only does the Lord Jesus Christ know your heart and your secret thoughts, God the Father has committed all judgment to him. The day will come when according to Romans chapter 15, verse 10 through to 12, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Can you imagine that? Standing before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ, he can see straight into your heart. He's dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. He is a discerner of the thoughts, the intents of your heart. And you have to stand before him and give an account of your life. Because that will happen for each one of us. On that day, may it please God for you to be found fully trusting in Jesus as your sacrifice for sin, as your temple in whom you worship God in spirit and in truth and in the beauty of holiness. Amen.